During our lifetimes, we all make healthcare decisions. Do you go to the doctor to get something checked out or do you wait till it gets better? In Australia, you may choose between Medicare and private health insurance. And these healthcare decisions are made on a personal level by weighing costs and benefits. But you're not the only one weighing up the costs and benefits of your health. Government, policymakers, hospitals do too. In Australia, like many countries around the world, the rising cost of healthcare is forcing our hand to make trade-off decisions about which drugs to subsidise, what treatments should be offered, and even who should get those treatments. So how are these decisions made? How do you measure the value of healthcare? Fundamentally, how do you put a dollar figure on a life? On this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Richard Diabru-Lorenzo, Associate Professor in Health Economics, and we're talking about how to calculate the cost of life and how these sorts of calculations figure in the way resources are allocated within our society. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So we'd like to talk about health economics with you, uh, Richard. So you work at the Centre for Health Economics and Research Evaluation, or SHARE as we like to call it here at UTS. Perhaps to help our listeners understand the nature of your work and what the members of SHARE do, can you tell us a little bit about what is health economics? Mm, sure. Um, that's a, a big question uh, and one that I'm often asked at a dinner party or any function where I say I'm a health economist and I get blank looks. Um, but essentially it's about understanding how are we using the resources in our healthcare system and could we use them in a better way to provide care that uh, improves more people's health and improves it in a better way. So we're looking at what it takes to provide care, how we could use that in a different way and the outcomes that are going to come from that. And those outcomes might be whether people live longer, but importantly, how well they're living, because that quality of life aspect is critical to what we're doing. Who does health economics intend to benefit? Everybody, really, Nicole. Mm -hmm. So um, what we're doing is, is we're looking at how societal resources are being used to make decisions uh, about care for everybody. So this is a particular branch of health economics. Obviously, there are lots of different ways that health economics is applied. But what we're talking about today in particular is about understanding what we're doing with resources in the healthcare system to allocate them and make, make sure that we're getting the most out of what's happening. Ultimately, that's to benefit people like you, myself, David, um, when we're using the healthcare system so that we're going to get the, the, the most out of what's going into providing that care. And if we take the back end of that acronym SHARE, part of it was about research evaluation. Mm -hmm. So what is health evaluation? How does it relate mm. to health economics? So evaluation is essentially looking at that question of if I do something in one way, is it producing outcomes that justify what's going into the production of that care. So for example, if I'm treating patients with radiotherapy, so that's radiation, um, as opposed to surgery, is that radiation producing more outcomes than I would have if I'd treated them with surgery? And that's what evaluation is in a nutshell. We can apply value evaluation to anything. It doesn't have to be a clinical trial. It can be the way that we deliver care. So it might be a different way of, of uh, delivering care through a GP practice. It might be the way that we structure our pharmacy system and the way that we make medicines available. So evaluation is just looking at how we're doing something uh, and is it delivering what we're expecting mm. yeah? or could it be done differently? Mm. So I can see that we have a lot of uh, implications both for policy as well as just kind of everyday everyday life. Yeah. 
Yeah. So all we'd hope that all policies have an evaluation component at the end. If we decide to do something, we should then have a look at whether or not that was beneficial. But for everyday life, we want to always be assessing uh, are we doing things in the best way possible. Or when new treatments become available, we want to know, well, if we're going to implement this new treatment, is it going to be worthwhile? And that's a critical component of that evaluation step. Okay, so as a health economist, I'd really like you to help us understand about how, uh, when we're making these sorts of decisions, or when people are making these sorts of decisions, say in policy positions, they have to make these trade-offs in terms of the values of different uh, health interventions. Mm -hmm. And to do so, they have to refer to something like a cost-effectiveness measure. So how is it that health economists go about measuring the value of a life? Mm -hmm. Wow, there's, there's a lot in that question. So maybe we should unpack some yeah. of those things. Yeah. So the first is, how do these people, how do these uh, decision makers make that decision? So what they do is they look at what it costs to provide the care. That's a critical component. And we're not talking there just about how much it costs to buy the medicine, but we're talking about uh, how much it costs to employ the people who actually administer the medicines, mm -hmm. how much it costs for the hospital beds, the GPs, and potentially how much it costs to then treat the side effects associated with medicines. Mm -hmm. Medicines aren't benign. You know, sometimes we have side effects that go along with them and they need to be treated as well. So we need to think about that in a very holistic way, yeah. those costs. Sometimes we also think about the costs in terms of whether or not people can go back to work and we have income loss or the ability to go, to, to go back to work as part of that cost equation. We, but we don't do that all the time because there are some complications in being able to assess that accurately. But we can compare those costs with what we're producing mm. on the outcome side. Mm -hmm. And we do that for both of our alternatives. So mm -hmm. it might be a new immunotherapy, uh, let's say for um, bladder cancer, compared with how we're treating people at the moment, which is a standard chemotherapy. And we look at, well, what are the costs involved for the immunotherapy compared with what it produces? And we compare that to the chemotherapy, the costs and the outcomes. And the evaluation component is then telling us, well, if we look at the difference in the costs and divide that by the difference in the outcomes, that gives us an incremental value that we can then think about, is that something we're prepared to pay for? And that's a little bit different to the value of a life. Okay. So when we think about the value of a life, we might be thinking more about what we see in a, stati in a statistical framework or an accounting framework of the value of a statistical life, where yeah. we just add up all of what somebody might have earned and consumed over their mm -hmm. life, and mm -hmm. we come to a number at the end. When decision makers in this context are looking at it, what they're looking at it is how much extra am I going to pay for that additional outcome? Now, the outcome might be a year of life, or it might be more typically the a quality adjusted life year. Ah, uh, yeah. This is yeah? this has got a funny acronym. Quality. Quali. Yeah, which is a bit like that funny little cartoon character, Wally, you know, but it's a quali. Quali. Quali quality adjusted life year. Yeah. Okay, so what what so this is a measure of the outcome, right? <clears throat> That's right. Okay. So what what is a what, quali? What's a quali? Yeah, what's a quali and why did we come about why did we uh, bring them about? Well, a quali is saying 
we can look at someone, how long they're living and look at how well they're living and combine it. So mm -hmm. we're not just interested in extending someone's life. We're also interested in extending life in a good way. Yeah. So that's you, the quality adjusted part. Right? That's it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And a quality is, one quality is a year lived in perfect health. Yeah. That's a one. That's one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But of course, if you don't have perfect health, it'll be less than that. And how we measure it is a little bit complicated. Mm. What we typically do is we have, um, from something like a clinical trial, we have patients rate how they're feeling. So for example, a patient who has uh, multiple sclerosis might rate within a clinical trial what's happening with their health. And they will tell us what it's like to have pain and not be able to move and not be able to um, dress themselves and that sort of thing. And that describes for us a particular health, what we call a health state. We then have members of society value that health state in terms of what they would trade off in terms of perfect health to avoid a health state like the one described by the multiple sclerosis wow. patient. So who, who are those people that make that sort of evaluation? So that is members of the general public. And that might sound a little bit odd to people. Well, why would we get members of the general public to do this valuation? And it comes back to why we're actually getting this value. We're getting these values so we can make decisions about allocating societal resources. Mm. So therefore, we ask members of society what they think about avoiding these less than perfect health states because it's a societal decision about yeah. resource. And, and on the basis of that, you will get some sort of kind of discount rate, I guess, by which you could, you know, take that one quality, which is a year of perfect health, and on the basis of what the members of the general public will say in terms of what they'd be willing, how much they want to avoid a particular health state, that gives you a sense of how much below one, one year of having that particular health yeah. state would be worth. That's a, that's a kind of nice way to think about yeah. it. Yes. It's a, they, it gives us a value between zero and one mm -hmm. that we can then apply to how long someone is living in that particular health state. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're speaking with Richard Diabru Lorenzo from the Centre of Health Economics Research and Evaluation here at UTS about how we value and measure life. Can I pick up on something that you talked about? And so I guess the cold, hard accountant in me now comes to the fore because you talked about the cost of providing healthcare mm -hmm. for someone and then you alluded to the marginal economic value that they generate. Yep. So, you know, revenue, if you like. So we've got costs and we've got revenues. And if you start to broaden that discussion, then the economic efficiency associated with resource allocation would suggest that younger people that are in professional occupations potentially are more likely to get resource allocation as opposed to someone who's towards the end of their life who is you know on a pension, not working, uh, and so on. I mean, if you actually yep. take that to yep. its logical conclusion, mm. we've now, as a society, with that apparatus, make, can make the decision from an economic perspective, this person's worth investing in, this person is not. So clearly it's not an economic calculation. There has to be values and policy associated with this then. Bless you, David. You have highlighted perfectly why we don't 
uh, as a rule, incorporate that income loss in our calculations of cost. And because for that very, very reason, because otherwise what we're doing is we're prejudicing our decisions towards those who are going to be more productive or have more of a productive life ahead of them. It also might mean that we're prejudicing against groups of society who, for no other reason, uh, have lower incomes uh, that don't reflect actual productive capacity, like women. We know that wage rates in this country do not reflect productive capacity. You know, there, there's a gender bias. Well, so, we had an interesting discussion with an economist on uh, intergenerational income inequality, and mm-hmm. we explored this very issue. Mm-hmm. And so there's no doubt that there are structural biases within yeah. society that would drive those sorts of outcomes. That's right. That's right. So it doesn't mean that we don't do those things in terms of looking at them as a secondary analysis. So we might do those those calculations as what we'd call a sensitivity analysis, which means we, we'd look at, uh, at the costs and outcomes first without including those additional uh, productivity effects. And then we might say, well, okay, well, if we now take those into account, would it change our decision and are we happy with that? And that's where the value judgments come in. Uh, if I may, I'd like to come back to something that Nic- that Nicole asked me, which is um, about making the decision mm. and about there being a value. Mm. And I think it's really important uh, to, to, to point out that there is no one value that these decision makers are looking for. They're not going to tip the hat at something that costs $40,000 per quality versus something that costs $80,000 per quality. What they're going to do is assess each one on their merits uh, because, as you say, David, there are many other factors that come into play Mm. that must be considered. Yeah, and we will come back to some of those, how these calculations feature in decisions in a moment. So we've already highlighted one of the issues potentially could be about whether or not you include income in your calculations and very strong reasons about why you'd actually want to sideline that. Are there any other challenges or problems that exist in these sorts of calculations and mm. doing these sorts mm. of calculations? One of the other challenges that we often face is the challenge of time, for lack of a better word. And that is that within the confines of the evidence that's generated about medicines, it's often over a very, very short period for, for many reasons, logistics, expense, all sorts of things. So we, we know very clearly and with a great deal of certainty what something might do over a three, five-year time horizon. But patients will live much, much longer than that. Mm. And as a society, we want to know, well, what's going to happen when we're using this drug or medicine or, or, or treatment, whatever it might be, over a longer period? So we then have to apply um, mathematical techniques to what we call extrapolate beyond that trial period to, to look at what's going to happen in the longer term. Mm. And that's where we start to see a little bit of uncertainty creep in about, well, are we really confident about what's going to happen with this particular treatment over the long term and with our understanding of how people might use it and how people might benefit from it? Mm. So that's another area where, you know, there's there's a little bit of a a grey zone, as you call it. We've kind of been like, we're in the thicket of these different calculations. And I guess for some people who might be listening, they're like, yeah, okay, so this sounds a bit esoteric, a bit abstract, in something a little bit brutal as well. But it seems important. At least I I get this sense from you that it's important. Mm. Why? Why is it important? Wow. Um, 
for me, I think uh, the importance of this is highlighted, uh, and if I can share a, a personal anecdote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I was flying down from uh, Brisbane back to Sydney um, one afternoon, working on a on a, a an application to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, and they're the body who makes decisions about, or makes recommendations, I should say, to government about whether or not medicines should be funded and I'm working on this application and the couple next to me kept looking at what I was doing through the entire flight and you know my paranoia is thinking oh my god do they work for a competitor um, uh, towards the end of the flight uh, the the wife prompted the husband to to, to ask me a question you know, go on go on speak to him speak to him and he finally turned to me and he said um, excuse me but do you work on that on that drug and I said uh, yes I do and at that point, uh, the gentleman actually started to, to well up and his eyes got all red and he's, and he, and he crying, he said to me, um, our son um, has leukaemia. If it wasn't for that medicine, he'd be dead now. We both wanted to thank you for introducing that product into this country and making it available to our son. Um, now, while I can't take the credit for making the drug available, I certainly worked quite heavily on, on making it available as a funded medicine. And that just hit home for me why I do what I do and why I really love working in this field because it is about making treatments and medicines available for the Australian public and for people who need them. Um, and health economics helps us do that. You know, without understanding and without being able to evaluate whether something works and is represents value for money, then as a society we wouldn't necessarily put dollars towards it and we'd end up in a situation like they have over the Pacific where you have large tranches of the population who can't access care. And that's not a society I want to live in. Richard, we'd like to talk a little more about how these kinds of health calculations are actually used. So, for example, in relation to policy, how would the cost of life calculations be used? There are a number of key areas where we use these sorts of calculations. The ones that people are, are going to be most familiar with, I think, uh, are in deciding whether or not drugs and medical services are going to be reimbursed by government. And what do I mean there? So every time we go to a pharmacy, we um, are able to pick up our scripts uh, at basically no charge. You know, we, we pay a little bit, but relative to what the, those medicines cost the government, we're paying very, very little. And there is a, uh, a committee, which I mentioned previously, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, who recommends to government which medicines the government should fund. Um, similarly, there's another committee, the Medical Services Advisory Committee, which recommends to government which sorts of medical services it should fund through Medicare. And we all know and love Medicare. That's what allows us to go to the GP and have pathology tests and have uh, scans and potentially, if we need to, to go to hospital and have healthcare delivered again at basically no or minimal charge to ourselves. So those two um, committees uh, rely on these sorts of, of, of numbers as part of their decision-making process. They are used by other government agencies and, and policy-making bodies at the state level, um, at, even at hospital levels. But at a national level, they're probably the two groups who use them the most. Could we then talk about those committees? How do they go about making these decisions then? Um, so what happens is that those committees will receive a package of evidence. 
and that ev evidence consists of whether or not the particular service works and, and let's talk about drugs because that's a, mm. a nice easy one uh, that it'll it'll give them uh, information about yes this medicine works and that typically comes from a clinical trial it'll then provide information about the value of that medicine relative to what's being done at the moment and that's really critical it's about how that medicine compares to what we're doing to patients currently so we want to know is it going to cost more and if it's going to cost more is it going to produce more outcomes so that we're willing to pay for those additional outcomes it thinks about that number plus how much it's going to cost the country in the context of a whole bunch of other things as well so it's not just about that number but it thinks about that number in the context of things like, do I have confidence in these data and in this evidence? So I mentioned earlier about that issue about you know trials being shorter relative to um, how long patients are being treated. So that's something that uh, plays into that confidence. It looks at whether or not this is a, a new treatment or the 10th type of treatment in a particular condition. Yeah. So is there a medical need? Is there an urgency to make this thing available? Are there issues of equity of access? So, for example, if, if they made this or recommended that this medicine be available, would it uh, differentially impact on someone in a rural uh, area as compared to someone in the city? And they might look at what would happen if they didn't make the medicine available. So are people paying for it already out of pocket and then therefore paying a lot out of pocket? Or would people die very, very quickly if this medicine wasn't made available? I guess my final question is that uh, recently you've advocated for the involvement of patients and mm. their carers mm. in these research and policy decisions. Mm. Why is this important? Why take this mm. approach? I think, I think this is really, for me personally, uh, really critical um, for a number of reasons. Um, the, the, the main reason is because as a health economist, I don't know what it is that we often are doing to patients and I don't know what it is that patients are experiencing from that care. So who better than a patient to actually help me understand that? Um, and it's important that we understand that because if we're going to be attaching costs to things, we need to understand what it is that we're attaching costs to. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be trying to measure, measure the outcomes of care, we need to know what, it, what outcomes are that are important yeah mm. Mm. Uh, and patients can really help us to understand that mm. so they can help us to understand what it is that happens in the process of care outside of the medical practice mm -hmm. and they can then help us to understand what the impacts of that care are and to put it into context to make sure that we have an accurate picture of what we're doing that brings us to the close of this episode of think business futures Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SCR 107.3. So normally at this point, Dave signs off with the until next time. Well, not always. Sometimes you beat me to it, Dr Sutton. But it's actually the end of our first season. Can't believe it already. I know. Hey, Jason, we made it to the end. We made it. Amazing. We, amazing. You guessed it great. Thanks. Thank so did you. So did you. Thanks. So instead of until next time, we should say until, until next, next season. season.